Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name's Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the show. Today, we have a special treat for you. Steve Perry is with us. Steve, say hello. Hello, everybody. (laughs) Steve oversees Sacred Harvest, which is a family foundation. His family owns a lot of real estate, and but Steve started out as a pastor, so he's got a very, very interesting story the likes of which I promise you've never heard. So, Steve, we always just try to start out with kind of where you grew up and what your family was like and that sort of thing. Tell us about that. Hey, Jeff, I grew up in a middle-class family in the San Fernando Valley, which is uh, outside of Los Angeles. And it was a church-going family, at least my mom went, mostly cultural, but as far as the church life with the children, it was our social life. It was our social center, mm. and we enjoyed it. And But as I progressed through the years, I inherited my mother and father's paradigm of how does one measure oneself? And that is typical of many people today. You do so by what you did. So after high school, I set off in engineering because that's what my dad wanted me to do. Then I realized mean physics didn't quite cut it. So I went to industrial arts because I figured I wanted to build and race cars. That's what I wanted to do. And then I became a tool and die apprentice tool and die maker. Did that for about a year and a half. But then things sort of changed. I went back to college, went into accounting. And while I was in accounting, I heard there's an opportunity. I could work at the FBI and work my way up to become an agent. As So you put in two years as a clerk, you get your degree, and you're eligible for the agent's exam. And I says, now I'm finally somebody. Well, believe it or not, I got into the FBI. Wow. And I worked in the photo lab. And I put my FBI badge right next to my driver's license, you know. So when I go to cash check, they'd say to you, you work for the FBI? And I go, Yes, I do, but I, I but I can't say anything because I might have to kill you, you know, that kind of stuff. I so, thought you were putting it because when the police pulled you over, you wouldn't get a ticket. That that, well, that tells was, you how uh, messed uh, up yeah, I am. But. That's true. So, well, I don't know. Police and FBI are not always on the best relationship. Yeah, that's probably true. You. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So anyway, we had so I did that, but within a thinking I had arrived because now I'm somebody. People respect me. My mom and dad were really just. Finally, they got bragging rights on their son for the first time in their life, you know? Yeah. And they're gloating. And I'm empty. And I have, for the longest time, I just kept praying to God about my relationship with him. Is there more to this? Is there more to this? Because there's something missing. It's just not sustaining me during the week. I was great when I was amongst Christian friends and on the fellowship of the saints, but like the James talks, I'm like a man who sees himself in a mirror, and as soon as he turns his back, he forgets who he is. That's what happened to me when I was outside the fellowship. I just languished. I just didn't feel the life. And so God finally got hold of me, and he says, we got to get this straightened out. And the thing that he had to get straightened out is what defines you. Mm. And what defi- when I realized the God of the universe loved me, 
I realize that's what defines me. So not your identity, your identity, right? That's what we talk right. about. Your identity, maybe My not identity in your profession was- or your title or your badge, right? Exactly. And so from that moment on, it didn't make any difference to me what I did in this world. Mm. I was going to be God's ambassador, his minister. So I was understanding the concept of the priesthood of all believers before I even knew the term. And that is everyone who's a baptized believer in Christ is a minister for Christ. It's just that God puts us in different pulpits. Well, I left the FBI, went to Bible school, which was a to my parents' chagrin, they said, well, you, if you're going to Bible school, you're going to be a pastor, right? No, I don't want to be a pastor. Then why are you going to Bible school? Well, I want to prepare myself for whatever God has for me in the future. So I finished Bible school, and finally, I did not realize what God was leading me to. I said, I'll finish my de- college degree. So I went off to Azusa Pacific, where I only had to put in one year of residency to get my degree. And it was the most monumental year of my life because that's where I met my wife-to-be. And as it transpired, as I said, I first saw her. She was running for homecoming queen. And she was in the court, and I was, and I go, man. And I had the opportunity to bump into her and meet her later, and we began to date. And then the only thing she'd ever tell me about her family was her dad's a farmer. Oh, okay. I didn't think about it. She's from Orange County. I'm not familiar with Orange County. And I met her parents, and they had a lovely home that an executive would have, uh, not dissimilar from what my dad's bosses lived in. There was nothing ostentatious about them. They were just very normal. He drove Buicks. My dad drove a Buick. He was a Mason. My dad was a Mason. You know, just very down-to-earth people. So Mm -hmm. I thought nothing of it. And then we become engaged. And dad says, well, let me show you the farm. And he drives down the street and the farm, in the middle of the farm, they st- they're still farming at that time, was the family's crown jewel, South Coast Plaza, which is now today 2.7 million square feet of retail. And at that time, I just, how can I say, cognitive dissonance just set in. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing to me? And as I pondered that, I says, is this a, a divine comedy where I'm, you know, I'm the butt of your joke? You know, you're sort of like the Greek gods, you know, who play with human beings just for their own amusement. I began to think about, are you teaching a self-righteous young man a lesson or two? Because when I met my wife, I believe poverty was next to godliness and wealth was a spiritual poison. And so I'm like going, what is this? And then lastly, I think every Christian has to ask themselves when they're in that situation that's totally unplanned for, is there a purpose in this? And I came to the conclusion of, over the years, the answer to that was all of the above. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time God had a laugh at my expense, because when I was in Bible school, I told him I was never going to be ordained. Five years later, I was. As far as teaching a self-righteous young man a lesson or two, through my wife's parents, I got to meet Christian friends of theirs 
who took the stewardship of their wealth seriously, and I began to realize that people can live righteously with their wealth. It was sort of like Peter when he thought Gentiles could not measure up to Jews as Christians, and then he goes and meets Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit's on the Gentiles, and finally he realizes, oh, even they can receive the Spirit and be one like us. And of course, the last part was the purpose. And that that road to discovery took 20-some years trying to figure it out. But the first thing I had to figure out in that process before I could really grasp there was a real purpose to this was I needed to f- be able to integrate my faith and my wealth in a way that they could coexist biblically, joyfully, and responsibly. And that was a big battle because the old paradigm of Wealth as a spiritual poison was still resonating deep inside of me, even though I was enjoying the comforts of the wealth that it brought. And so I had, I, I just like, no, I didn't know, really know what to do. And the problem was I had nobody in my life that I can talk to regarding these issues. Because the people in my church did not share my wealth, though they shared my values. So they didn't understand all my questions. And the few people I knew that shared my wealth didn't share my values, so they really didn't understand my questions and what I was wrestling with. And so I longed and for it. But then slowly by slowly, little God sort of peels away at this confusion. And I think the nail in the coffin when I finally get to that point to where I can make sense of it was from a letter I got from Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity. I just finished reading his book, The Theology of a Hammer, and in that he talks about how he was this very successful, driven businessman, so consumed by it that his wife, Linda Piney, said to him, she says, you know, you're going to have to choose business or family. Wow. Because you can't seem to do both. And so he decided... He chose family, and he left with his family, went off to a Christian commune, and and the whole idea of habitat began to form. So I asked him the question, because here I am thinking, okay, this is the story of the rich young ruler again, which I thought was the only paradigm for wealth, give it all away. So I wrote him a letter, and I said, is this what you did, what you advised Christians of wealth to do, is to abdicate themselves of their wealth and give it away? And he wrote back to me, and the first thing he starts off doing was caution me about the the temptations and the dangers of wealth, which we all know. And I think that's probably why I had this, this view that wealth was spiritual poison, because my recollection, recollection in the church, all the sermons on wealth was always about the temptations and the dangers of wealth, but never about the purpose of wealth. And so after he cautioned me about the dangers and temptations, he says, I've also come to see that if the Christians of this world abdicate themselves of their wealth, then whom would God have to fund the work of his kingdom? Finally, I realized there's, that was the purpose. I began to realize that wealth was as much a gift from God as were the spiritual gifts. I just love that because I was thinking about you know the verse that, Money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Right. But what it doesn't say is money is evil. No. It's just like you say, if the tool is used improperly, like many other tools, right? of course it can be used for evil. And it's got, hey, let's go back to the hammer. Right. <laughs> a hammer can be used for good or evil. Well, true. The, How do the you use it? Money. Yeah. Paul says the love of money is the right. of evil. And Paul talks about how the spiritual gifts can be a source of evil in Corinthians. That the people use the gifts of the Spirit to be a way of dividing, creating division amongst the believers. Right. So, again, it's neutral in and of itself. It's how it's used. So you, 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 you take the story, sorry to interrupt, but you, you take the story of the, what I like is the juxtaposition of the Habitat for Humanity person, mm-hmm. who frankly was completely obsessed with business and kind of had to chuck it and then go do something meaningful. I think of Bob Buford's halftime where, you know, he, you know, he right. sold the family cable company and then, you know, moved from success to significance. But I know Bob always said, you know, some people are supposed to stay in business, you know, and, and can be have meaningful lives that way. I think what's so interesting is the juxtaposition of you being literally a pastor who's thrown into this world with the other mindset, like, no, I'm a, not a literal monk, but, you know, sort of like, uh, I'm just going to live simply. I don't have to worry about the money issue. That's going to cause all kind of, and what a sense of humor God has, frankly, to teach us these unique lessons that he's got for us. But now you're in it. Okay. And I just have to ask, your wife's name is Susie, right? Right. How has she been through this? It sounds like She's been pretty patient with you. How's that been? You know, it hasn't been much of a struggle for her. Yeah. I think her parents were very good in establishing in her and her siblings that who they were as a significant family in Orange County and their position and their wealth did not define them. Yeah. So she was never hung up with that. And I have to say our kids are very much the same way today. Yeah. The thing was, we also realized we had to live in a closet as a pastor with our wealth. Yeah. I have in my book, uh, Living with Wealth Without Losing Your Soul, I have a chapter called The Stealth Bomber. And what it was is Sue's family had donated the land for the Performing Arts Center and gave the lead gift here in Orange County. And I drove, uh, Chevy Blazer S10. She had a Chevy Astro van. And we have these black tie functions that we go to three, four times a year. I says, we need to get a car. So we went out and bought a black Mercedes back in the uh, late 80s. Well, the, the interesting thing was that black Mercedes never once touched the church parking lot. It would stayed in the garage. Yeah. Only a few friends knew we had it because we could trust them. So we were living this stealthy life, you know, with with our wealth. People knew who Susie was, but no one really had an idea of what we had. And we were generous to the church, and they so that really probably never raised issues. But you know, this is in the midst of the yuppieism, and so we stayed to, you know minimized 
our standard of living from where it could be for the simple reason I didn't want to be a temptation to somebody else. And they used me as a justification. And I didn't have to go around, have to explain myself. So what were some of the major themes of your book? Well, I think that I've talked about the first part of it is this this discovery that wealth is as much a gift from God. And it should be celebrated, not in a boastful way, but with thanksgiving. I remember we got our first million-dollar check, and we had sold off one of the office buildings that the family had developed. And Sue got it, and she was just beaming, and we went outside. And I took a picture of her sitting on the, the bench and holding the check and never shared it with anybody. Never could we share it with anybody. Yeah. There was, there's always this sense of apology or shame that goes with it. And, you know, part of the joy of anything is the ability to celebrate it with somebody else. Right. And so, but then I began to, you know, over time began to realize, imagine if uh, Celine Dion came out to sing. And before she does, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, before I begin, apologize <laughs> that I have this great voice. I know many of you do not have this voice. And I don't mean to demean you in any way whatsoever. I, it's a gift from God. And I just want to use it to bless you. People would think she's nuts. Right. But unfortunately, we as Christians, you know, we live in the closet regarding that because usually when you talk about money, even in a celebrative tone, you know, people just think you're bragging. Now, you've, you've shared with me that you've, found a little bit of a community here and there. Can you share with us, you know, if we have somebody walking down the street listening to this and they're kind of feeling a little lonely in this camp, I mean, obviously they can read your book. That'd be helpful. We'll uh, link to that in the show notes. But also, you know, there's some groups out there. And then we're big on this at, at Arcos, our company, to create community, as we've talked about, uh, where I think, I think the enemy loves to separate us Breakdown communication, and then the more money you have, you know, you can live in the gated community, you can fly in the private plane, uh, you're afraid, heck, you used to be a pastor, you're afraid the pastor wants something from you, the employees want something from you, so you, there's a tendency to get really isolated. So how did you figure out to build a little bit of community? At first, it started off with discovering a group called The Gathering which for lack of a better definition is a, a fellowship of Christian philanthropists and they have a conference every year. And this was in the late nineties. It was a time which when a lot of Christians were working in tech companies and you know, the, the dot com was just going bonkers and they're all suddenly have this newfound wealth and they're like deer caught in the headlights and what do we do with it? And and we believe it or not, there was more ministry going on in the bar yeah. than there was. No, in the I do conference. believe it. Yeah. It's just where we talk. And the thing is, is people of capacity, all people, but people of capacity, especially, they need to have those safe places. Yes. Where they can have those kinds of conversations and ask the kinds of questions. And people are not going to look at them funny and say, what are you talking about? 
Because if I talk about the angst that goes with the right. side of, of stewarding wealth in a way because I'm accountable to God, you know, most people think you're nuts. You got the brass ring. Right. And we always say the number one dream in America is to win the lottery. People think the money's going to solve their problems. Well, we all right. know how it generally goes for the lottery winners. And right. uh, they yeah, write but, books about how poorly it goes. So it actually right. creates a lot more issues. Now it can it does. be used well too, but. Yeah. And you, as you shared a little earlier, is that all of a sudden everybody wants something from you. Right. And, and that was one of the things I had a hard time with. I was very guarded about, I'd run into ministry people and, and it's, oh, how can I say? They can't help themselves sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and they just go. So I belong to this group called Barnabas. Yeah. And I, I help. I, in fact, I was a co-founder of that back in 2000, 2001. And then they started inviting ministry people to be part of the group. Well, they were enjoying it. But all of a sudden, I'm walking around and they go, oh, you're Steve Perry. So-and-so says, I need to talk to you. And I go, I can't go there anymore. Right. And so the thing is, you want to be accepted for who you are, not what you have. Right. You want to have real authentic relationships that people are not expecting something from you. And so to find those kind of safe places. So like what you're doing, I think is is awesome in terms of allowing place they come together. Because like I said, they're people of like values and similar means. Exactly. And they're all asking the same questions and dealing with the same issues. Well, I find it so fascinating that God had you in this place of getting your identity straight early in your life mm -hmm. and then throw you into a place where he completely moved your cheese, if you will. <laughs> what you thought that identity. Oh, it's in you. Wait, now let me put you in this situation. I, I never thought about it that way. He moved my cheese. He, he moved your cheese big time. Like, oh, now you think you know what your identity is. Now I'm going to throw you into the deep end of the pool. You still got it? Yeah. But, you know, it's really interesting. It's I was 17 years as a pastor. Yeah. And I think that was very much preparing me for what was to come. Because right after I resigned my call, I went to start the National Christian, what is now the National Christian Foundation in California with a couple other business guys. And it was shortly right after that, the spigot from the family business just started pouring out. And I was saying, this is a full-time job, just trying to figure out what to do with it. If yeah. I was a pastor in the church and had to wrestle with this, but I think God was putting in me the disciplines and the tools that I needed as a pastor that would serve me well when I got into foundation work. Because one of the things that I do is in our foundation is I, I, I operate differently than a lot of other foundations. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I look at a lot of foundations that businessmen have started and they're very highly functional. And, and, and I, you know, I fall into that comparison you know, where I compare myself, I, I don't operate. In fact, the way I approach things is different from them. Is there something wrong with me? And then I began to realize, no, what it is, is I, I don't come from the foundation work from a business perspective, which is part of what it is. I really come from a, from a pastor's perspective. And so what we do is 
always highly relational. That's foundational to everything that we do. It's not just a transaction. Send in your paperwork at the grant request. We'll ask you a few questions. We'll give you some money and buy you see you later. No, we when we give a grant, it's exploratory in terms of this is a relationship we want to pursue and we give it two or three years. And if it's a relationship that proves itself to be worthy, we'll continue that relationship for many years. We don't normally run in and then run out kind of thing. Yes, we do that occasionally because there's somebody out there doing something I think is a great work and I just want to bless them, but I just don't need another organization to be married to. Now, one thing that we talked about earlier that I think is really interesting is I can imagine a world in which, and I know it's a multi-generational business that your family is involved in, and maybe coming in with, with your kind of early worldview, mm. uh, if they took a vote and said, who wants to sell and just get the, the cash instead of maybe having these operating assets, real estate and so forth. I mean, I can imagine, you know, you might raise your hand and say, look, I, I'm out. Uh, let's just cash out. I don't have to deal with any of this anymore in terms of the family members and all this stuff. But you made a really interesting comment to me before we started recording when we were kind of talking before about the amount of giving that was able to be done because it's a continuing entity versus selling it. Would you mind just sure. sharing on that? Yeah. There were two times in my life when I wanted to give it all away. The first time was when Sue and I got married. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it was, I felt like it was going to burn a hole in my soul. And, and it's really interesting. I think after years of wrestling, unfortunately, it wasn't mine to do, so it didn't happen. Right. And after a couple of years, I, I'm wrestling with this. I, I got to get rid of it. I got to get rid of it. I gotta right. Get rid of it. And, and, and all of a sudden, I sort of like hear God whispering in my ear. Coward. Wow. Well, it was really more of two words, but that's the gentle word. <laughs> Your self-talk's a little harsh. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're being a little, you know what? Yes. And, and, and it's like, and it says, you just don't want the responsibility. Yeah. And he's right. I wanted to live a life like a typical middle class. So I do my tithe and, right. and living takes care of the rest. And, you know, I don't have to worry about those. It's things. another job. We talk about having your personal balance sheet when it grows to a certain point. Right. becomes like another job. And yes. and most people don't want two jobs. They got, that's a great way of putting it. I like that. So the second time, to your point, was in the mid-90s. And I wanted to give it all away, but my motivation was not pure. Right. It's amazing how much self gets into our best intentions. I wanted to create a bragamony. Look what I did. Follow me. A bragamony. That's a good word. Yeah. And of course, again, it wasn't mine to give away. Well, as I look back 25 years, I realized that we've given away three times as much over that 25 years than what we have, would have done back in 96. Now, 
for some people, that's the road they God wants them to go. And that I think that's a fundamental thing of my book. God doesn't work by formulas. He's not a one-size-fits-all guy. Amen. This is a faith journey. This is not follow-your-neighbor journey. I remember when Jesus was talking to Peter after his resurrection and told him what was going to happen, how he was going to suffer and all that kind of stuff. Peter goes, well, what about John? And he says, well, what is it to you if I keep him alive until I return? Follow me. So don't get into that comparison issue of what others are doing. Use it as inspiration, encouragement. But the question is, what does God really want you to do? And that's where a lot of the angst comes in, because it's really easy if I'm following somebody else. I got a roadmap. But with God, you know, as a friend of mine likes to say, you know, he's only a light to our feet. He's not a searchlight to our future. Ooh, that's good. And so you just have to go it step by step and just live by faith that I'm doing the right thing and and live by grace in case I'm not. I'm just thinking of, you know, as you said, that each of our journeys is unique. And one of the things I love to say is that uh, turning everything over to God, like I try to control things for so long in my life. And it got to an empty place. And when I turned it all over, actually, it was so freeing and so much more fun. So I think God's sort of trusting God's path. You know, I know he's talked, you, you've talked about trusting his plan for you, but I'm just imagining, I mean, yours is definitely a one of a kind story, but there are other people. And I'm thinking of, uh, uh, of clients we're dealing with right now at the firm where just really because certain industries are soaring because of certain economic situations that they don't control. You know, we, we have companies being sold for values that the founders can't believe, and they're sort of stunned by the responsibility of it. And they are trying to find people to talk to. You know, that's a common thing is somebody to talk to who does, as you said, share your values and the wealth issue. It's not that easy to find. That's kind of the thing we're trying to create as a place for people to do that. But maybe you can speak to this idea of, you know, just maybe one more time at kind of as a summary of, of you know, somebody in, who's in an unexpected path. It doesn't have to be the exact one you're in, but they're, they're on, an, uh, on an unexpected path. And how do you, what are some basic steps you can take to embrace that path? That's a surprise. Wow. One, the first rule I says, don't try to figure out where the path is taking you. So good. I have, I've never been a goal setter. And it bothered me because everybody I talked to, they have goals. They have those <laughs> and everything like that. And I'm like, yeah. and I go, again, is, am I an imposter? Is there right. something wrong with me? And I was talking to a friend of mine who was a former CEO of a big tech company. And I said, and I finally dawned on me. And I said, I says, I says, you know, I, I, I feel somewhat shamed for not having goals. What I have is directions. Mm. But I never know where those directions are going to end up. I just know, like in the book of Acts, I go to this city. And then I, then I find out after that city, what city I go to next. And then I go to the next one. And it's just always following you know, it, it's not a straight line. And most people would say, if you ask them, if you look back 10 years in your life, are you at a place you imagine you'd be in? They say, no. 
And so what he said to me, he says, Steve, have you ever read an article from Harvard Business Review called Discovery Driven Planning? I go, no. He says, that's what you do. It says, it's sort of like you you have sort of a white paper, a direction you want to go. You have a sense of what you want to do. But as you go, you're always testing your, your assumptions and questioning your strategies. And you're remaining flexible because you never know what the opportunities are going to be. You never know what the obstacles are going to be. And so just go in the direction you think it's the way you're supposed to go. And then things will begin to open up. But the first step always has to be one of faith. Right. And so I've everything in my life has been is been unforeseen. Obviously, marrying Sue and that reality was unforeseen. But even in the foundation work that we have, there's always a, a new turn, a new twist, and unexpected. So I, I I tell people that so the word is really be patient. Yeah. And allow God to develop because at, through that, you know, that the period of development, you know, you begin to have a sense, a better sense of who you are and where you want to go. Well, I think what's evident is you have this really strong ability to listen to God's direction, which is the most powerful thing. And I think this maybe, I think it's pretty obvious what God is really teaching through you and and that you're sharing with other people about this walk with God. And, and it's, uh, it can be a very unexpected walk. And so the, the thing, and I think maybe this is just a continuation of what we're talking about, but one of the things we try to leave everybody with at the end of the podcast is just one practical tip, a little something they can do tomorrow morning to just get a little better on their walk or as a business owner who has a desire to be generous. What, what what one little practical tip might you leave them with? I think that, well, I don't know if this is so much a, of a, a personal application as it is a personal warning, okay? And that is, as you grow in this desire and passion to follow God and seek his will in all things, whether it's with the, the stewardship of your wealth, the stewardship of your business, whatever it is. Include your spouse in the journey if you have one. Ooh, yes, that's good. The All too often, the church is great about growing couples apart because the men are off doing this thing and the women are off doing that thing. And they all have these, they're building different dreams apart from one another. Um, when I resigned from the church, my wife was the one who gave me the confirmation to go. Mm. Without that, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. As far as with the foundation, it's her confirmation that we do this together. Now, there are things I'm much more gifted at doing than she is, and that's why I run the foundation. But it's just something that i always struggling to make sure that we grow together in this work. That, that takes intentionality, doesn't it? It does. It does. And sometimes you'll find some are not as interested as you are. You know, they give you the permission, and you just have to learn to live with that dynamic. I, I figured I had to come to that conclusion once about too long ago. 
we had a, a, re, a redemption opportunity for the first time in the company's business. And we decided to participate in it. And basically, we were, it was more than we need, no more than what we did with. And I just would have just put it all in the foundation. But I wouldn't have consulted with my wife. Right. And she wouldn't have known because I do all the, the finances right. and everything else like that. And I wrestled with this question. Does God want me to be a good steward or a good husband? Ooh. And I figured he'd he choose I being a better a husband more over than my stewardship. He, he'd understand. And so I put together a number of spreadsheets. Now, if we get showing that all the tax, if we do this, this is the tax, we do this much, all this kind of stuff, and show her what the bottom end was going to be in each and every of the scenarios. And lo and behold, she says, well, cash-wise, you can do a maximum of 60% of your right. adjusted gross income, right? 40% looks too low. How, why don't we do 50%? I mean, yeah. Hallelujah. Praise she, the Lord. So in other words, she was closer to your plan anyway. I mean, but you have to risk, you have to risk her not being. Right. And and I think what I heard you say is, you know, <laughs> look, God owns everything. And he's rooting for us. He wants the best for us. So right. the marriage goes before the the numbers. He he doesn't need he doesn't need our money. That uh, he'd rather have us united, and we'll be on the same page uh, from there. So no, I think that's just a great word because it's so easy to run your own path. I know that's hard for me to make sure I'm always on the same page. So and when the other one doesn't run at the same speed you do, right? You know, really creates angst for us chargers. That's right? true. That's true. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> and, and I fail. I have to confess. I fail. Oh, we all do. We all do. But I think that's a great word. Get your spouse on the same page. And well, I think we have to, I could do this uh, all day, but Steve, I think we have to wrap it up, but I just want to thank Steve Perry for being on the generous business owner podcast. Thank you, Steve. And I want to remind everybody, I am not the lead singer for Journey. <laughs> I mean, that had we had to get it in there, didn't we? And thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.